Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. I don't know about you, but I am so looking forward to the day when we can gather around the throne of God in heaven and we can sing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. The Gospel of John chapter 21. We've been looking at lessons from lives that truly matter. They matter to God, they matter to God's people, they matter to the kingdom, and they matter to us. We learn from the examples of people who've gone on before us, those things that we need to pay attention to, those things that we need to uh, either incorporate into our lives to strengthen us in our faith, or those things that we need to stay away from because they would weaken our faith. I've known men who were missionaries and pastors, evangelists, and teachers until they were sidelined by an affair, by an addiction, to alcohol or drugs, by greed, couldn't keep their hands off the money of the church, sidelined by pornography, sidelined by emotions that they could not keep under control. And these that I have known over the course of almost 50 years now in ministry did not believe Jesus could forgive them or restore them to ministry so they left they left the mission field they left the pulpit they left the highways and byways talking to people about Jesus to become truck drivers, construction workers, farm hands, or employees in local businesses. Sidelined by sin. Believing that the sin was too great that God could forgive and restore. Is there something in your life this morning that keeps you from serving the Lord to your fullest capacity? Something you believe Jesus cannot or will not forgive and restore in you spiritual health? or service, 
something that you cannot forgive yourself. All of us have our ghosts. All of us have our skeletons in the closet. But beloved, there is no sin so dark that Jesus cannot bring his light into that sin and dispel that sin and remove it from your life. There is no circumstance, there is no situation so deep and so devastating that the love of God cannot draw you out of that and set your feet on high ground. There was a man... who loved Jesus with all of his heart. This man served the Lord boldly and faithfully. But he sinned a great sin that sidelined him. His name was Peter. Other than Jesus Christ, Simon Peter is arguably the most prominent person in the four Gospels. His Hebrew name is Simon, and it means the one who hears. His Greek name is Petros. Jesus nicknamed him Kephas, which is Aramaic. Petros and Kephas both mean a large rock. And it symbolizes strength and stability and firmness of character. Peter came from Bethsaida in Galilee, but he lived in Capernaum along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He was married, but we don't know anything about his wife or children. There are traditions that talk about his wife and children, but we have no solid scriptural verification. We do know he was married because Jesus healed his mother-in-law. That's kind of a... Anyway, we'll just leave that one alone. He was partnered with two brothers, James and John. They had a profitable fishing business on the Sea of Galilee. One day, Peter was introduced to Jesus by his brother, Andrew. Now, Andrew had been a follower of John the Baptist until the day when John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and declared him to be the Lamb of God. Then Andrew began to follow Jesus. And he introduced his brother, Peter, to Jesus. But understand, Peter 
was a serious, hardcore fisherman. And he was not easily swayed by other people. He didn't commit himself to Jesus like a lot of the other disciples did when they first met Jesus. Peter was um, not that kind of guy. In fact, Jesus called Peter to discipleship three times before Peter finally answered the call, left his fishing business, and followed the Lord. Peter was zealous. I mean, he was, he was gangbusters. He was all in feet first. He was an outspoken disciple, and he was one of Jesus' closest friends. Rough as a cob, he was strong-willed, brash, and impulsive, often, often suffering from foot-in-mouth syndrome. He had a strong personality that cost him some colossal mistakes as a disciple. As a natural-born leader, he became the de facto spokesman for the twelve disciples. He and James and John formed the inner circle of three that were closest to Jesus. They saw Jesus raise Iarios' daughter from the dead. They also saw Jesus transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter and John were responsible for preparing the last Passover that they would share together with Jesus. On occasion... Peter proved himself to be so impulsive that he acted foolishly. In Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 and 23, Peter saw Jesus walking on the storm-tossed waters of the Sea of Galilee, and he cried out, Jesus, if that's you, bid me come and walk to you. And Jesus said, come on. Peter got out of the boat. He began walking on the water toward Jesus. But as he was walking toward Jesus, he took his eyes off of the Lord and began to look around him at the waves and at the storm clouds above and at the winds that were swirling all around him. And as he took his eyes off of Jesus, he began to sink in the water. Jesus had to save him from drowning. On another occasion... In Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 23, Jesus had told his disciples that it was time for him to go into Jerusalem to be condemned by the elders, to be crucified, and then raised from the dead on the third day. Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him for talking like that. Jesus sharply reprimanded Peter for not knowing the will of God. As Jesus was being transfigured on another occasion in Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8, 
Peter said, we need to build three tabernacles here. One for Moses and one for Elijah, the two that appeared with Jesus in his transfiguration, and a third for Jesus. But from the Shekinah cloud that enveloped them all, the voice of God spoke to Peter and admonished him to listen to the words of his son Jesus Christ. Peter fell on his face, fearful and in silence at God's glory. And then Matthew chapter 26 and verse 33 Peter bragged of his loyalty to Jesus Christ and said that he would never forsake the Lord, even if everyone else turned tail and run. Peter would remain loyal. Later that evening, in the courtyard of the high priest, Peter denied knowing the Lord three times. When Jesus was resurrected, he told the women to go find Peter and tell him that Jesus is indeed alive. Later, Jesus forgave him restored him, and recommissioned him to service in the kingdom of God. Of the many, many lessons that we could draw from the life of Peter, it's this event that I want to focus our attention on this morning. In John chapter 21, we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 19. And as you look at verses 15 through 19, I want us to understand, I want all of us to understand that Jesus forgives our unfaithfulness and restores us to service when our repentance of sin is genuine. Jesus forgives our unfaithfulness and restores us to service when our repentance of sin is genuine. We're going to talk about repentance and restoration as it applied to Peter in this wonderful, wonderful encounter with Jesus. Now, as I stated, on the same day that Peter bragged that he would remain loyal to the Lord, that night he vehemently denied knowing Jesus three times. The rooster crowed, as Jesus said it would. Peter remembered the words of Jesus to him, you'll deny me before the cock crows. He remembered those words. And he left the courtyard of the high priest weeping bitterly. The next morning, Jesus was crucified, but Peter was nowhere to be found. For two days, he was overwhelmed with guilt 
shame, and bitter grief for what he had done to his Lord. Three days after the crucifixion, Peter and John heard from Mary Magdalene that she had visited the tomb and Jesus' body was gone. They immediately got up and they ran to the tomb. John looked in and found the tomb empty and believed that indeed Jesus was alive. But Peter had gone into the tomb confused and didn't know what to think. But it didn't matter. He had already burned his bridges. He had already severed ties with his Lord. Later on that day, Jesus appeared to Peter. We don't know anything about that encounter. Scripture doesn't say what took place. But later on that evening, Jesus appeared to the disciples. But Thomas was absent. The disciples told Thomas when they found him that the Lord had risen and it appeared to them. But Thomas says, I will not believe until I put my finger in the nail prints of his hand and in the spear mark on his side. A week later, eight days later, Jesus appeared to the disciples and this time Thomas was present and he believed. About a week after that, Jesus appeared to seven disciples who were fishing out on the Sea of Galilee near the shore. They had worked all night, but they had caught no fish. Jesus was standing on the shoreline and he called out to them, cast your nets to the other side. And they did. And they brought in a boatload of fish. John said to Peter, it's Jesus. Peter jumped out of the boat and he swam to shore. And there was Jesus. A fire, a campfire had been made. And as the other disciples pulled the boat ashore, Jesus said, bring some fish. And let's have some breakfast together. They ate breakfast together. But it wasn't like the old days. Something was different. In John chapter 21 verses 15 through 19. I want to draw three lessons. From Peter's repentance of sin. And restoration to Christian service. And the first lesson is this. Repentance and restoration is always personal. Repentance and restoration of sin, repentance of sin and restoration to service is always personal. After breakfast, Jesus and the seven disciples were sitting around the campfire. And then Jesus spoke directly to Peter. I used to think a long time ago that Jesus drew Peter aside and they walked quietly together away from the others. But I don't believe that's true. 
I don't believe it's true because of some reasons that I'm going to speak of here in just a minute. Jesus spoke to Peter directly with the other disciples sitting there around the campfire. The conversation was personal, but it wasn't private. It was personal, but it wasn't private. As a spokesman for the disciples, Peter denied knowing Jesus publicly. And so the issue had to be addressed publicly. There is a principle in Scripture that I've found over and over and over again. And the principle is simply this. Public sins require public repentance. It's personal, yes. Because it involves the one who has sinned. But public sins require public repentance. And Jesus was not going to speak to Peter privately about this matter because what Peter had done in denying Jesus was a very public sin as a spokesman for the disciples as well as a visitor in the courtyard of the high priest. And as he spoke to Peter, he asked a question. He said, Peter... Well, he said, Simon, son of Jonah, or John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? I have no doubt in my mind that the question shocked Peter to the very core of his being. It shocked him in his heart and in his mind and in his spirit because the truth of the matter has now been exposed. Sin, forgiveness, and restoration is all about love. Never forget that. Sin is about love. Forgiveness is about love. Restoration is about love. Who do you love? What do you love? How far does your love take you? Do you love things more than things of the world, more than the things of God? That's sin. Do you love others more than you love Jesus? That's sin. Sin, repentance, and restoration is all about love. And this entire conversation is framed and saturated with the principle of love. Jesus asked, do you love me more than these? What are the these? The these that Jesus is referring to. What, what was it that he was referring to? Was he referring to the fishing boats and to the nets, the things of Peter's former life? I don't think so. I think this encounter goes far deeper than what Peter was in his former life. 
When Jesus said, do you love me more than these, was he referring to the disciples? Do you love me more than you love these disciples whom you've spent three years with in discipleship and in ministry? No. I don't think that was the point either. I think it goes deeper than his relationship with the other disciples. Could it be that Jesus is referring to his love for Christ as opposed to the disciples' love for Christ? In other words, Peter, do you love me more than these disciples love me? Yes. Yes. I think that's the point. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 33, Peter declared his undivided loyalty and his undying love for Jesus. What did he say? He said, even though all of these may fall away because of you, I will never fall away from you. He declared his love and loyalty to Jesus in front of all of the other disciples. And in essence, he was saying to his fellow disciples, I love Jesus more than you love Jesus because when, it comes, when push comes to shove, you're going to abandon him, but I will never abandon him. And I think that was the point Jesus wanted Peter to face. You see, the satisfaction of self-expression had become the sting of self-exaltation. The satisfaction of self-expression, I love you more than everyone else, became the sting of self-exaltation. John was sitting there at that campfire. Young John, who became a disciple when he was a teenager. So he's probably in his late teens or maybe 20 or 21 by this time. He's the youngest of the disciples. And he's sitting there at the campfire with the other disciples, listening to this conversation. He was the only disciple at the foot of the cross when Jesus was being crucified. He loved Jesus enough to support and to encourage him in his dying moments. But where was Peter? When John found the empty tomb, he believed immediately that Jesus had risen from the dead. But Peter was not so sure. He didn't know what happened. Do you love me? More than these, Jesus asked. Repentance and restoration is always personal. But there's a second lesson in this conversation between Jesus and Peter. And the second lesson is this. Repentance and restoration is always painful. Repentance and restoration is always personal and it is always painful. 
Simply, listen, simply telling Jesus, I am sorry for my sin, is not repentance. You may be sorry for your sin because you got caught, not because you're convicted of the sin. You may be sorry for your sin because of the guilt that comes into your heart and into your mind because you dishonored a law or a principle or a tradition. But repentance doesn't come from just being sorry. It also comes when you understand that you have breached the love of Christ in your life. It's all about love. We love, and when we breach that love, it brings sorrow into the heart. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians, you're in uh, John, so turn right and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and look at verses 9 and 10. 2 Corinthians was a letter that Paul had written. The 1 Corinthians was a letter... Uh, that Paul had written to try to straighten out some major problems that were uh, very, very evident in the Corinthian church, was a troubled church, as I've said before. Uh, It was a sin-wracked church. It was a church where personalities prevailed over personal devotion to the Lord. It was a church uh, that... um, uh, just had taken the, the teachings of, of Jesus and had corrupted them and did all kinds of evil things. It was more worldly than it was Christian. And in Second Corinthians chapter 7, Paul talks about repentance. And he talks about um, what repentance really is. Verses 9 and 10. Chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. I now rejoice, the Apostle Paul writes, I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. Get that. Mark that. Highlight it. Underline it. Do whatever you do so that it'll pop out at you. Paul says, I now rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, in order that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Now what's the point that the Apostle Paul is getting here? You can be sorry for what you've said and for what you've done, how you have acted. Because you may have, you may have breached some standard of conduct in society. And you can very well pass that off by saying a number or doing a number of different things. But that doesn't necessarily mean you change inside. It doesn't have that major effect in your spirit that repentance has. But godly sorrow, when the Spirit of God convicts you in your heart, in your mind, in your spirit, that you have breached the law of God, that you have breached the love of God, that you have broken the relationship that you had with Jesus Christ, that cuts deep into the heart and into the life of the Christian. 
And it produces godly sorrow that brings a person to a point of repentance. And what is repentance? Repentance means to turn away from sin and turn back to God. That's life-changing. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Godly sorrow saves you from the guilt of your sin. Worldly sorrow does not. Worldly sorrow just simply makes you comfortable in your sinful ways until eventually you die because of it. That's the point. Repentance and restoration is painful. Genuine repentance comes from an understanding of how sin affects God. And I know that we very seldom ever think of this when we are contemplating sin or disobedience or when we're in the midst of sin or disobedience. We, we forget about how our actions, our words, our behavior affects God. We forget how such conduct is displeasing to him. We forget that such conduct quenches the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. We forget that it's not just disobedience to God's law, but it's also disloyalty to Jesus whom we call our Lord. Sin is not a mistake. Sin is not an error. Sin is not a flaw in our humanity. It is a breach in one's love for Jesus Christ. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 15. But not only Does genuine repentance come from an understanding of how it affects God? It also comes from an understanding of how our sin affects other people. The hurt in the heart and in the mind of those that we have offended. The relationships that are now called into question or even destroyed by what we've said or what we've done. Genuine repentance also comes from an understanding of how sin affects us personally. The guilt and the shame, knowing that we love sin more than we love the Savior, that we would follow the ways of the world rather than following the ways of the kingdom. Notice verse 15 and 17, back to John 21. John 21, look at verses 15, 16, and 17. Jesus asks the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? But you'll notice in these verses, Jesus asks the same question three times. He asks the question, do you love me more than these? Three times. I don't think Jesus needed to remind Peter that he had denied the Lord three times. I don't think this is what that's about. Some say that Jesus asked the question three times because Peter denied Jesus three times. That may be true, but I don't think that's the point. Jesus did ask him three times. Peter did deny Jesus three times. 
But Peter did not need to be reminded of that. What did David say in Psalm 51, the the penitent psalm? David said, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. It was only three days after the crucifixion. Or no, it was more than three days, about three weeks after the crucifixion. And I'm sure every time that Peter looked into the face of Jesus, he saw the man that he had betrayed. The man that he had declared publicly that he would remain loyal to. Even unto death he would be loyal to Jesus and he betrayed Jesus. Jesus didn't need to remind him of that. I believe Jesus asked Peter the question three times for love's sake and for Peter's sake. Over the course of three years, Peter declared his love for Jesus in many ways and at various times. But in the crisis of the crucifixion, Peter's declaration of love for Jesus was eclipsed by his lack of devotion to Jesus. I want you to look carefully at verses 15, 16, and 17. And I want you to note the word love. There are two different words for love involved in this conversation. Two different words for love. You'll read only one word, love. But there are two words translated love in English. The first word is agapao. Agapao. It's love of the highest order. It is divine love. It is godly love. It is rooted in the spirit and in the will of a person. Agapao love is more purposeful than it is effectual. It is more purposeful than it is effectual. The second word translated love here in this conversation is the word phileo. Phileo. It is kindred love. It is friendship love. It's natural It's spontaneous, it's emotional, and it's rooted in the heart rather than in the spirit or in the will. Therefore, phileo is effectual more than it is purposeful. And these two words are incorporated in this conversation, and I want to point this out to you as we read through These three questions. Jesus asked Peter in verse 15. Jesus asked Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Jesus used the word agapao. Agapao. And what he was saying to Peter is this. Peter, do you really love me? Do you really love me? You said that you loved me. You said you would keep me from going to the cross. 
that you would die for me if it came to that. You said that you were more loyal to me than all of the other disciples. Is that true, Peter? Do you really love me? Note Peter's response. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But Peter doesn't use the word agapao. He uses the word phileo. Phileo. What was he saying? He said, he was saying in essence, Jesus, despite what I have said and done, despite my arrogance and my pride, and my promises to you, and my denials of you, you know my heart. You know I am only a friend. You know I am only a friend. I believe some time passed in silence. Then Jesus asked a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And again, Jesus used the word, agapao. Do you really love me, Peter? Is your love for me genuine? Do you love me in spirit? Are you committed to me, Peter, because you love me? And again, Peter responds, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And again, he uses the word phileo. Lord, you know me. You know that I am just a friend. I believe some more time passed in silence. And Jesus asked a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And note in verse 17, Peter was grieved, cut to the heart, devastated, in sorrow. Why? Was it because Peter felt Jesus didn't believe him? That Jesus believed that he couldn't even be a friend to him? Because he denied knowing Jesus three times. And friends, true friends, don't do that to true friends. Was it because he had proven that he indeed was Simon, the one who hears, and not Peter, the solid rock? Stable and reliable? Was that the source of his grief? No. 
When Jesus asked Peter the third time, Do you love me? You need to note that Jesus did not use the word agapao. He used the word phileo. Peter realized that he did not rise to the love that was deeply devoted, to a love that was life-changing, the kind of love that Jesus had for him, and that grieved him. And yet, and this is the wonder of the entire encounter, and yet Jesus was willing to stoop down to Peter's level of love in order to bring him up to the superior love that Jesus had for him. And that grieved him deeply. Peter was a proud man. Peter was a strong man. Peter was a take-charge man. But in all that he was, and in all that he could muster, he could not rise to the level of loving Jesus with all of his heart and with all of his life. And that humbled him. And what was necessary for him is necessary for you and for me. Jesus has to stoop down to our level of love in order to bring us up. But repentance and restoration is always profitable. It is always Profitable. Jesus willingly loves us at our level so that we might learn to love him at his level. And that is always profitable in the heart and in the life of a true Christian. Jesus came down from the courts of heaven to die on a cross so that he might lift us up to the superior love of God for each and every one of us. And that is always profitable. In Luke, excuse me, in John chapter 15 and verse 13, Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for those disciples and he laid down his life for you and for me. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, the apostle Paul writes, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How much does God love us that he was willing to send his son to stoop down to our level and to give his life for us that he could bring us back to God. Jesus forgave Peter for denying him in his hour of need. He forgave Peter for not supporting and encouraging and carry it when Jesus could no longer carry that cross down the Via Dolorosa. Jesus forgave him 
for not being at the foot of the cross where he should have been when Jesus was dying and needed the comfort of a dear friend. And beloved, if Jesus could... But Jesus also restored Peter. And again, this is the third point. Restoration and repentance is always profitable. He restored Peter to apostleship. Three times Jesus recommissioned Peter to Christian ministry after he asked the question, Do you love me more than these? In verse 15, Jesus said, Peter, I want you to tend my lambs. The lamb is a young sheep. To tend means to feed. In other words, Jesus is saying to Peter, You are forgiven of sin, but I'm not done with you yet, Peter. I want you to spend the rest of your life feeding my young ones, discipling new believers. And then in verse 16, Jesus said, I want you to shepherd my sheep. Sheep are the more mature ones. To shepherd means to pastor. I want you to take care of my church. I want you to take care of these other disciples. I want you to take care of the more mature Christians that you're going to encounter along the way For the rest of your life. I want you to lead the spiritually mature ones. Into Christian ministry. And then in verse 17. Jesus said Peter I want you to tend my sheep. I want you to feed. Continue to feed. Not just the younger ones coming up in discipleship. But I want you to continue to indoctrinate the older ones. The spiritually mature ones. Continue to grow them up in my word. Continue to grow them up in ministry. To continue to grow them up. In serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And from that day until his martyrdom. Which Jesus also speaks of here. In chapter 21. Truly, truly, verse 18. I say to you when you were younger. You used to gird yourself. You used to clothe yourself. You walked wherever you wished. But when you grow old. And you need to understand what he's saying here. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you. Jesus is telling Peter, you're going to be crucified. Because the phrase, stretching out your hands, was a very common phrase in that day, to be crucified. And someone else is going to gird you. Someone else is going to put you on the cross. So Jesus is telling Peter, you're going to take care, you're going to feed, you're going to nurture the new Christians, you're going to lead the mature Christians, you're going to continue to indoctrinate, and you're going to continue to raise up my people according to my word until the day they will take you and like me, they will crucify you. Peter, from that day forward, became a solid and unwavering apostle. He never looked back on his past. He never looked back on his betrayal of his Lord. He never looked back on his brashness and his arrogance. He always looked forward 
to where Jesus was leading him, to what Jesus wanted him to do. He fully embraced the name Peter, for he became the rock upon which the ministry to the Gentiles found strength and stability. Is there something in your past that you're concerned about today that keeps you from serving the Lord tomorrow? Do you believe that Jesus can never forgive you of your sin? Restore you to a place of spiritual health and service because of something that you can't even forgive yourself of? Think again. Think again. In the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 30 and verse 9, For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate and will not turn his face away from you if you return to him. Stand with me in prayer. David's going to come and we're going to sing a song of benediction. Father, may these words find root in our heart, in our mind and in our spirit, that we, like Peter, will set today down as an Ebenezer, a day where we have made that commitment to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we will never look back on the sins of the past. David, lead us in a song. And as we leave today, may we hum, think about, sing the name of Jesus. A few of the names we have. His name is Master, Savior, Lion of Judah, Blessed Prince of Shepherd, fortress, and rock of salvation, Lamb of God is He. He's the Son of David, King of the ages. said God bless you The Bible says if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead you will be saved If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith give your life to him 
If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.